beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, is there a secret to eternal youth? If you scour the internet and the bookstores, you'll find many products and philosophies which offer you a way to slow down or even stop the aging process. And they usually involve a lot of money and time and hard work. But even if sometimes there might be a way to achieve better health temporarily, no one can escape the fact that our outer self is wasting away. As we age, our minds and bodies break down, and every day we draw closer to death. And this is not a surprise. God is life. When humanity turned their backs on God, they turned their backs on life. The wages of sin is death. And here we identify the problem with every human attempt to find eternal youth or eternal life. What is common to all these human attempts is that they do not deal with the root problem. The root problem is that man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man has turned away from God, who is life itself. And so the only way out of death is to turn back, to turn back to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Scripture says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is not the secret to eternal youth. This is the publicly available good news proclaimed by the church for thousands of years to all the nations. And this is the core of the confession of the Christian church. The Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Days 2 through to 4 laid out the problem. Man is a sinner. Man is under the sentence of death. And then Lord's Days 5 and 6 laid out the solution. Christ died for sinners. And then Lord's Day 7 explains how sinners, like us, can participate in the salvation that Christ has worked. By a true faith, we are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. And then Lord's Day 7 continues to describe the character and the content of faith. And it comes down to this. The Christian believes God. The Christian believes God's word. The Christian believes God's promises. And then in question and answer 23, we have the creed, a most beautiful and succinct summary of the word of God. In the word, God reveals himself to us. In the word, God promises himself to us. And so the content of our faith is this, that we know him, that we know God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that we know who he is and what he has done. And that's what the creed is all about. The creed is all about 
God, who he is and what he has done. Now, Lord's Days 8 through to 22 explain each article of the Creed in depth, and this year, in order to stay in sync with the junior catechism classes, we will take all of these Lord's Days together in one sermon. Obviously, we won't go into as much detail per article, but we'll step back and we'll look at the Creed as a whole. And so if you have your psalm book still open, it may be helpful just to, to look at uh, question answer 23, which gives the, the Creed right there in front of us. Now, the creed is all about knowing God and knowing the works of God. And you see in question and answer 23, those three Roman numerals, the, the, the creed is divided into three parts. The first part is Article 1. And there the church confesses the person and work of God the Father. Then Articles 2 through to 7 is the second part. And there the church confesses the person and the work of God the Son. And then the third part is Articles 8 through to 12, where the church confesses the person and work of God the Spirit. Now, the word creed in English is derived from the Latin word credo, which in Latin is a verb. It means I believe. And the origins of our creed is the practice of the church to ask new members who were about to be baptized to give a testimony of their faith, to make a profession of their faith. After all, Baptism is a sign and seal of our being engrafted into Christ. And when an adult comes to the church from the world, they can only receive the sign and seal of the covenant if they first testify that they have the faith by which they are engrafted into Christ. And so the minister would ask the new believer, do you believe Jesus is Lord? And they would reply, I believe. Credo. And this is how it began. It was that simple. And there's a reason that it was that simple. The early church began in the context of the Jewish nation. The people of God of the Old Testament, they had the word of God. They knew about God the Father in creation. They knew about the promises of the Messiah. They knew about the Spirit of God and the promise of forgiveness of sins and new life. And they were missing just one piece of the puzzle. The whole puzzle was all built. They're just missing one piece what was the name of the Messiah? Who was the Messiah? And so to become a member of the Christian church in that transition period between Old Testament and New Testament, become a member of the Christian church, simply required a believing Jew to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. That's how easy it was. It was that was the only part that was missing. And that's why at Pentecost, you have thousands of people being joined to the church. These weren't people that came from paganism to the church. These are people that knew God, that knew the scriptures, that knew the gospel. And they learned that last bit of information, who is the, the Christ, the Messiah? It is Jesus. And so they were joined to the church. And so you see that reflected, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, where the apostle writes this, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord was a simple confession of faith at that time, especially for people that came from a background of Old Testament belief. You see it in the confession of Peter in Matthew chapter 16, where he says the same confession to Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you can think of what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in those 
texts that I just quoted, you see elements that come back in our creed, that Jesus is Lord, uh, our Lord that's right there, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus was raised from the dead. These all came together and were put into our creed. But that's all it took to move from the Old Testament church into the New Testament church just to confess that Jesus is Lord and Christ. But as time went on, as more and more non-Jews were added to the church, the confession at baptism became more elaborate, more detailed. For people who did not know the Old Testament, it was a new thing to learn about God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. And so the baptismal creed becomes more and more overtly Trinitarian. In many churches, the minister would ask, do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in God the Son who died and who was raised? Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? And in different churches, different details about the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would be added. And as people traveled back and forth, and pastors and elders and deacons traveled back and forth, they would learn that in this and this church, this phrase was used in the baptismal liturgy, in the profession of faith at baptism. And as churches learned about each other's practices, they would borrow from each other, and so the liturgy, the baptismal liturgy, grew over the centuries to take the form of the Apostles' Creed that we have it today. And already by the fourth century, it was largely in the form that we know it now. So the Creed is a most succinct confession about God, about who He is, as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. It's a most succinct summary of the teaching of the Bible. Look at the first article. See how it begins. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And what Bible book does that make you think of? Children, where does the Bible talk about God creating the heavens and the earth? That's Genesis, right? And then you look at the last articles of the creed, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And which Bible book does that make you think of? Or Revelation, of course. And then in between that beginning and that end, the creed summarizes the teaching of Scripture about the providence of God as he governs the world and governs history, so ordaining all things, so that in the fullness of time, Christ was born, suffered, died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. So you've got the whole story in 12 very simple articles. That's a very beautiful summary of the scriptures. In the first part of the creed, we confess that we believe in God, the Father, the Creator, that we know Him as the omnipotent God who rules over all things, who raises up kings and casts them down, who rules over history, who governs everything according to His eternal decrees. In the second part of the creed, we confess that God the Son entered into time and space and was made man. We confess that he did everything that the Father decreed and that he had covenanted with the Father to do for us before the foundation of the world. He was conceived for us and our salvation. He was born for us and our salvation. He suffered for us. He was crucified for us. He was buried for us. All his suffering on earth and on the cross is summed up in that phrase, he descended into hell 
And he did that for us. And then in the third part of the creed, we confess that the Holy Spirit takes the benefits of Christ's sacrifice and applies them to us. As we read the scriptures, we see time and time again that the Spirit always works together with and through the Word. This is an important scriptural fact, that where the Spirit is at work, it is always through the Word and with the Word. Spirit and Word come together. That's true in Bible times. It's true throughout history. It's true today. It was that way at the beginning. God created the world. He spoke it into existence. He created it through the Word, through the Logos, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Son, His eternal Son. And the Spirit was there hovering over the waters, working with the Word to create light out of the darkness and to bring life into existence. And so it is still today. It is by his word and spirit that God gathers and defends and preserves the church. It is by his word and spirit that he assures us of the forgiveness of our sins. It is by his word, the voice of command at that last day, and by the work of the spirit that he will raise our glorified bodies from the grave. And it is by his word and spirit, yes, it is in the power of Christ and the spirit that we will live and live, and live forever. This is our faith. It is by this faith that we are engrafted into Christ and united with him. And this faith is very simple. It is simply a confession that God is true. That everything God's word says is true. That we believe in God And we believe the works of God as he has revealed them to us. When we confess the creed, we're not just saying that we know about God. We are saying that we know God. This is our God. This is our Savior. This is who he is. This is what he has done. Now, we live in the midst of a society which does not know God and often does not want to know God. We know neighbors and co-workers and fellow students and even family members who are rushing around looking for the secret to eternal life. And they flit from idol to idol, from religion to religion, from one self-help book to another. And brothers and sisters, it's like being in the desert relaxing by the refreshing waters of the oasis and seeing people just a few meters away filling their mouths with sand in a desperate attempt to slake their thirst as they're dying. It's a horrifying picture because we know where the water is. We know where the life is. We know who is life itself. We know him. So how can we be silent? How can we keep this glorious God and all his glorious works of salvation to ourselves? Brothers and sisters, let us believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us hold fast our confession without wavering. Let us teach our children to confess the name of the Lord, to know the Lord. 
And let us call the world to come, to bow the knee, and to believe with the heart, and to confess with their lips that they too might know him, that they too might be saved. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Every tongue will confess. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord shall all the offspring of Israel be justified and show glory. In the creed, we confess that we know God. And to know God is to know life. And to know life in God is to already feel in our hearts right now the beginning of eternal joy. And to know that after this life we shall possess perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. If it is good to know God now, then how good it will be to know him then. Amen.